1: Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Whether you're a long-time listener or a first-time wrong thinker, perhaps we should refer to them as the uh, wrong think curious, hey, I'm glad you're part of the audience today. Our program is brought to you in part by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College. A couple of uh, network sponsors I'd like to show some love to, that would include HSL Ammo as well as Pure Light. There are contact links in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. Just click on them. They'll take you to each of these sponsors, uh, tell you their magnificent story, and give you a chance to tell them thanks for sponsoring the show. Got some pretty heavy topics today. Not going to lie. This, uh, this is going to delve into a few areas that might be uncomfortable for some people. We're going to talk a little bit about the woke agenda and particularly how uh, woke or wokeness Is being marketed to kids. I mean, hey, it doesn't matter if old fuddy duddies like you and me are skeptical and we're not uh, on board with with the latest woke crusade. No, no, no. Not when uh, there are bright little minds available in schools and uh, various other organizations, and those kids can be indoctrinated at a very early age. Some people, by the way, choose to do this right there in their own home. It's kind of disturbing. And you know, it's not that uh, I'm just questioning their parenting style. It's 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 a matter of wow. If you're teaching kids to think in terms of um, critical race theory, for instance, I mean, there there's a lot of effort to teach this in the schools. Some people just go so far as, you know, I'm teaching my toddler how to read, but to doing it in a very woke way. This seems like classic. Marxist indoctrination at play. And I don't use that lightly. It's not like, oh, there's commies everywhere. You know, we're, this is not a John Birch Society meeting. Um, by the way, the Birchers were right on a lot of their stuff. But, but uh, no, this is just an acknowledgment that this line of thought, this philosophy has made incredible inroads and I don't mean that in a complimentary sense. I mean, it has, it has attached itself like a parasite to a lot of the institutions that uh, we have taken for granted. And we're paying a pretty big price on this. Cancel culture is a natural extension of this. And if you're, you know, certain that, well, I would never think or do anything that, you know, could be considered offensive or oppressive or supremacist in any way, eh, think again. Those goalposts are constantly moving, and I can promise you what you felt perfectly safe embracing just last week could very well be verboten come next week. That's the whole key. You never know. We're constantly kept uh, off balance, concerned, a little fearful. Uh, can I still say that? And and I think that's by design. I believe that's, that's intentional. Fearful, scared people are not likely to, uh, you know, stand and defend themselves or their natural rights in the face of that kind of a quest. So it's a great way to shut people up. Now, I want to start, though, <clears throat> with, with why, why this works. <laughs> and, and to do that, you got to start delving into the idea of how is it that politics can make people so divisive, so angry with each other. Well, there's a great article from Kent McManagle that has some answers. It's titled, Politics Destroys Civility. And as with with most things that Kent writes, he is just direct and gets right to the point. He says, do people really have to wonder why politics divides people and makes them angry? He says, I've explained it before, but I still see people who seem confused over the mechanism at work here. How can they not understand? Or, he asks, is it a matter of not understanding what they don't want to understand. Fair question. Ken McManigle says, if you constantly call for government violence to be used against anyone who doesn't believe the same way you believe, which is the nature of all politics, you are dividing people. You're going to be making these other people angry. You are threatening them with deadly force, threatening to take their life, liberty, and property. So what do you really expect? You're showing yourself to be an anti-social simpleton. You can't get along with others because of your desire to control them. And it doesn't matter if you imagine you are right or left. Government supremacism is government supremacism. Government can have no rights or imaginary political authority to do anything. Trying to cheat the system and act as though it does is going to make you the cause of division and anger every time. That's a hard truth, right? Because a lot of people believe, no, 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 but I've, I've attached myself to the right politics. And I, you know, I, I lobby for the right politicians and the right policies. And in some cases, there may be good and wise public policies. But you know what? Generally, when something becomes politicized, by which I mean when government gets involved, it becomes a power struggle. And that power struggle always pits us against one another In this zero-sum game. Back to Kent McManagle's article. He says, if you're going to decry the lack of civility, the anger and division with one breath, and then call for government violence to be used against other people with the next, well, he says, I can't take your concerns seriously, but I may still take your threats seriously. It took me a long time to come to this understanding. And in a, I, I really didn't believe in my heart. I don't want to control other people. I don't really want to, you know, impose things on other people. Thankfully, I had some good friends and mentors who helped me recognize that every single one of us, I don't care how pure your intentions, we all have a little tyrant living inside our skulls. Every one of us. It's human nature is what I'm saying. And to keep that little tyrant under control, or better still, to exile that tyrant to whatever island Napoleon was exiled to, we we have to make some real effort to do it. I think the single biggest deciding factor for me personally was learning what government is supposed to do versus what it's not supposed to do. And that can encompass a lot of stuff. It's, I wish I could say it's a very simple thing. It's just, you know, if A plus B equals C, you know. Nope, it's, it's really not that simple. There are principles that are at stake. There are times when government can be a legitimate force for good. Now, my anarchist friends are going, now, oh, Brian, let's not get radical. But uh, I'm going to put it on the record here. I believe good government is a blessing. But I also believe good government is pretty rare. It's like unicorn rare these days in that good government has to be limited. It has to be accountable. It has to be for the purpose of protecting and guaranteeing natural or God-given rights. It's not in the business or it's not supposed to be in the business of dispensing favors for everybody and punishing this group so that this other group can, you know, can rise and fulfill their destiny. That's what it's being used for right now, but that's, you know, the source of a lot of our, you know, rancor in in American uh, society today. So we have a little bit of a decision before us, at least those of us who are serious about uh, remaining free people and not making the problems around us worse in the process. And part of that is going to come down to how well do you understand what government is supposed to be doing. I know sometimes people's eyes get glazed over when you start talking about the Constitution. Oh, boy, here we go. It's a constitutional speech. But if you want to understand why the Constitution was so revolutionary, so groundbreaking in terms of the, the system of government that it called into existence, you have to understand the history and the philosophies behind that document. It wasn't just the, you know, fad of the moment for that founding generation. They drew upon <clears throat> thinkers and history and even biblical doctrine to help them craft a series of checks and balances, a series of, of uh, departments of government, branches of government, I should say, that uh, would fulfill very different purposes but the main goal for why they did what they did was this, liberty. Now, people can try to, you know, dress it up. No, 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 Brian. What they were trying to do was they were trying to put into motion a white supremacist or racist kind of government baloney. They definitely saw things differently than we see them today. And, and their blind spots don't necessarily mean that they were horrible people like us they were people who were trying to deal with the world in which they were born. The one they were born into. The one where everybody rode horses or took a buggy where they had to go. And in some places they made mistakes. They had blind spots. But guess what? So do we. So, our best bet is to do some serious original research. Read original sources. If all, you're, if all you know about the Founders... Is what you have read in a textbook or what somebody else's book has told you. You are missing a huge part of the big picture. To find out who the founders were, you really need to read what they themselves wrote. And by the way, they weren't shy about writing their thoughts down. So, little homework assignment if you're up to it. Read those original sources, do that original research, research and
0: learn who they this really were. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I'm going to dive right in here. This is uh, one of the most disturbing stories I've read. And yet, uh, I think there's a great solution that's offered here, too. I was giving you some ideas of, you know, what could you be reading you know, in the last segment, if you if you really want to understand the foundation of why did the founders set out to to write the Constitution the way that they did, why did they set up a federal system of government? That's not what uh, what a lot of people believe it is. A lot of people think, oh, well, one where the national government is supreme and everything it says goes. Nope, that's not what federal means. I don't want to go too far down uh, the the rabbit hole here, but I'll tell you, in a federal system the states are the parties who come together as as the people of those states called them to come together and they created a compact, which is a multi-party contract, and that's what called the federal government into existence via the Constitution. The states were supposed to handle most of the day-to-day details in governance, particularly as it applied to the people, you know, closest to, to home, and and uh, only in those areas of, of overlap where it concerned, uh, for instance, their interactions with other countries, that's where a national type of government would be supreme. Very, very limited area. I mean, this is outlined in the Constitution. It was brilliant, and it worked for a long time, but <clears throat> as you've seen, we have seen some uh, morphing and shifting and whatnot but uh, you can't understand this unless you read some of the different uh, different sources that informed the thinking of that founding generation, and that means you got to dust off books like uh, Montesquieu's *The Spirit of Laws*. You read that book, and you will start to understand. Oh my goodness, there was uh, there was an awful lot that uh, they borrowed from Montesquieu when it came to setting up their system of government. John Locke and and his writings. Particularly, his writings on natural law informed their thinking. They had tons of history at their disposal. We can't just be cheerleaders for the founding generation. We've got to be willing to pay the price they paid to read the sources they read and understand the things that they did. So, with that in mind, let's now turn our thoughts to, what about the kids? I'm not just going to go plop a copy of, you know, The Spirit of Laws into the lap of my four-year-old grandson and say, Here you go, James. Read up. This is a great book and this will help you understand everything that's going on. Nope. And yet the woke side of the equation, the people who are pushing the woke agenda, they actually uh, don't seem all that concerned that you and I may not be buying into what they're selling because they're focusing their efforts on creating a brave new world of woke children. And that can only be done through propagandizing those kids. So there's an excellent article here from Annie Holmquist. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. And it's called The Brave New World of Children's Propaganda. I saw this story the other day, but to, to hear Annie put this into context, it's really chilling. She says, the other day I was sent an Instagram video of a little boy having story time on his mother's lap. The little boy was precious. The time spent on his mother's lap special. But the choice of reading material was woke. The selected story was the Gay B.C.'s by M.L. Webb. A is for ally, repeated the little boy. B is for Buy. C is for coming out. D is for drag. Now his mother praises him after he finishes the book, asking, are you a woke toddler? Parroting her words, the little tot proudly proclaims, I'm woke. Now, Annie Holmquist says such woke reading selections are par for the course as educators, politicians, and society at large seek to lead children through our world's challenges. The recent release of Renaissance Learning's What Kids Are Reading report underscores that educators and authors are now seeking to teach young children about social equity issues, climate change, and other political trends. As such, the report promotes woke titles like Black Brother Black Brother, which deals with the inequitable treatment people with of inequitable treatment of people with different skin colors, and other books dealing with charged political issues like immigration and gender identity, including Come On In, 15 Stories about Immigration and Finding Home, and Transmission My Quest to a Beard. And he says judging by these examples, it seems the woke steamroller is actively coming for the next generation but she says it doesn't have to run over our children. Knowing its methodology is one of the first steps to preventing its destructive ways. And here she pulls up a quote from Aldous Huxley from his 1958 title, Brave New World, Revisited. Huxley said, quote, Children, as might be expected, are highly susceptible to propaganda. They're ignorant of the world and its ways and therefore completely unsuspecting. Their critical faculties are undeveloped. The youngest of them have not yet reached an age of reason, and the older ones lack the experience on which their newfound rationality can effectively work. End quote. So Annie Holmquist says thus, <clears throat> if society can catch them young, tenderizing them through imparting woke ideology on racism, sexuality, and other progressive issues, then such policies are more likely to be accepted a few years down the road. And this is intentional, Huxley explains, for the dictators and would-be dictators have been thinking about this sort of thing for years. He goes on to say, quote, Millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of children are in the process of growing up to buy the local despot's ideological product. And like well-trained soldiers to respond with appropriate behavior to the trigger words implanted in those young minds by the despot's propagandists. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, look, wokeness is the propaganda of the despots of our time. Children are inundated with this propaganda by by way of trainings they receive at school, books they find at the library, programs they watch, and people they follow online. As Huxley says, their young and impressionable minds are, as yet, unable to sort through the information they receive to understand what's true and what's right. But as the video she has linked here with the mom reading to her little woke toddler shows, some parents are eager for their children to receive such propaganda. Others, however, are not. So how do those who find themselves in this latter camp proceed? Can we combat such propaganda and ensure that it doesn't settle in our children's minds? Well, she says it's a challenge, but I believe it's possible. She says the first thing to do is present children with a steady diet of material that runs counter to woke ideology. Providing your children with books which model family values, a strong work ethic, a love of country, and a traditional perspective on history, that's a good way to start. Drawing from Charlemagne Institute's Great Books list, several titles for grade school, middle school, and high school students include, these are the grade school books, Aesop's Fables, Little House on the Prairie, The Door in the Wall, Black Ships Before Troy, The Swiss Family Robinson, and Amos Fortune. For middle school, the kids could be reading Johnny Tremaine, The Bronze Bow, Tales from Shakespeare, The Hiding Place, Little Women, and Animal Farm. When they get to high school, they could be reading books like Great Expectations, The Screwtape Letters, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Ho oh, oh, ho oh, oh. ho That's one of the books I think that the woke would like to burn. Uh, a Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice. She says the second course of action is to teach your children logic, knowing how to present good arguments and recognize fallacies in the arguments and presentations of others is essential for living in a world of propaganda. While teaching logic can seem a bit daunting to parents who feel like they don't even know it well themselves, learning logic can become almost like a game through the fallacy detective and its companion book, The Thinking Toolbox. She says the battle against propaganda is difficult indeed. But fighting it is not a lost cause. She says it's time we went on the counterattack for the sake of our children. Now I'll have a link to this story in the show notes. Maybe you can check out some of these titles yourselves. By the way, what she recommends for reading for the kids, it wouldn't hurt either you or I to pick up those books and read them ourselves. Why? Well, because how else are you going to have discussions about what's in those books with the young minds who are reading them? reading alone isn't enough. You've got to have some meaningful discussion with others who've read the same thing. Give it a try. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back.
1: Okay, I'm going to delve into some real wrong think here. Just, you know, consider yourself warned. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about critical race theory. I know you're hearing more about it these days than you'd prefer, but here's the here's the sticking point for me. This is the part where I, I just, I can't accept what critical race theory is offering. And that is, I don't believe that critical race theory is is being wielded in an attempt to address Actual wrongs, and to correct actual wrongs. I suspect it's much more likely that it's being used to divide and conquer our society. Great art- There's a great article here from uh, Stella Morabito. This is in the Federalist.com and it describes how critical race theory is a classic communist divide-and-conquer tactic. Now, I know, we're supposed to have kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, boy, you mentioned communism, therefore, you know, this is all just some wild conspiracy theory. But if you have actually, for, for that instance, if you've actually ever read anything that Marx wrote, I mean, it's not that uh, you're reading it so that you can better, you know, embrace what he's saying, but you do need to understand. What did he say? Why is Why is Marxism so seductive to so many people? And the truth of the matter is, You have to read it to understand it. As you read it, you're going to discover there are some places where Marx actually makes sense. There's also a very quick place where he goes off the rails entirely, but uh, his vision of a better world was rooted in the idea of equality. And I believe it goes back to uh, his, his rendering or his understanding of, you know, Cain killing Abel in the Bible. Why, if nobody really owned any property, why Cain would have had no reason to kill his brother and try to take control of his flocks and, you know, to to profit at the expense of his brother's life. So, therefore, if we can just eliminate property, we can have equality and everybody will be happy. But, again, the mechanism, how's that going to come about? Oh, well, it's going to be forced. There's the problem. If it's something that has to be forced on people, if they have to be coerced into embracing it, then it's really not genuine. It's just, it's tyranny dressed up in good intentions. So with that in mind, if tyranny can dress in good intentions, you know, this seems to be the best of intentions. Why? We just have to fix all these problems with, with uh, this disenfranchisement and, and oppression that has, has plagued our society. Here's how Stella Morabito puts it. She says, of all the ways identity politics is used as a tool to sow hatred among people where there should be the potential for friendship, critical race theory is one of the gravest offenders. Every person of goodwill should know that judging people based on their physical characteristics is cruel and wrong, but that's not the nature of critical race theory, however. She says, rather, the insidious ideology is being used to promote estrangement rather than friendship and hostility rather than goodwill indeed the tactics used by proponents of critical race theory share many parallels with old tactics used by the bolsheviks as such federal employees and those who work for corporations that do business with the federal government sucked into the are sucked into the poisonous vortex of critical race theory and they can thank president trump for ordering a stop to the promulgation of critical race theory Thanks should also be sent to scholar Christopher Rufo, whose diligence brought the critical race theory venom to the forefront of Trump's attention. And Russ Vought, director of the Office of Management and Budget, who's working to root out members of the administrative state who defy that order. Now, this article, by the way, was published last year, so that's why she's speaking of President Trump in in present tense here. She says it's important to remember that because very few of its activists have shown much sincere desire to end racism, critical race theory should not be taken entirely at face value. Stella Morabito says if a majority of its supporters were sincere, they would be willing to have fruitful discussions in a civil society that supports civil discourse. Rather, critical theory's agitators are committed to tearing down civil society on the pretense that it's an incubator for what they call systemic racism. Now, if you've had any doubt about that, she says, consider the Smithsonian display on whiteness that condemned all elements of civil society, including things like politeness, hard work, self-reliance, logic, planning, and family cohesion. Now, the point here is none of these are white values, but critical race theory frames them just so. And this sort of animus proves that critical race theory arguments are non-starters, and they merely serve as convenient pretext for power grabs. Doused with critical race theory, the Black Lives Matter organization and its related Antifa-infused mobs are organized for the same purposes as all cult recruits, to recruit more people and to implement the desire to divide and conquer And this is something we saw over and over last year as they would surround people in vehicles or restaurants demanding their victims raise a fist and recite slogans under the intense intimidation and implications of violence. Indeed, agitators who deploy critical race theory have zero interest in ending racism. Instead, they've made essentially the same point over and over again. They say racism is an unsolvable problem. If you've been tainted as white... Well, there's nothing you can do about it. You are eternally a racist, especially if you don't believe you are. Does sound familiar, doesn't it? Robin DiAngelo explains it all in her best-selling book, White Fragility. Your only option is the cultist's option. Submit to your critical race theory overlords and then recruit others to do the same. However, if you're a black person who disagrees with all this, well then, in the words of President Biden, you ain't black. As with all forms of identity politics and intersectionality, critical race theory stokes divisions between people where few or none existed before. It's all about relational aggression and predatory alienation. And, and here Stella Morbido says, Let's look at a perfect example of this process, a parallel case from Soviet history. As peasant farmers tended to be overwhelmingly religious, traditional, and family oriented, the Bolshevik government hated them with a fiery passion. Increasing the acrimony further, the peasants resisted giving up their family-run farms, a roadblock to the Soviet leadership's desire to exercise complete control over the nation's food supply. To collectivize agriculture, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin devised a plan to stir up hostilities among the peasants where resentments had never existed before. As would be the case later with Mao's Red Guard and today's radical statue-toppling, Molotov cocktail-throwing radicals, the Soviets used mobs of youth to do the dirty work. The communist youth league known as the, Com- the Komsomol went into villages to propagandize and incite divisions, turning formerly peaceful neighbors against one another. In his book, The Whisperers, Private Life in Stalin's Russia, Orlando Figus describes the situation, quote, the villagers had never heard such propaganda in the past, and many were impressed by the long words used by the leaders of the Komsomol. At these meetings, the villagers were told that they belonged to three mutually hostile classes, the poor peasants, who were the allies of the proletariat, the middle peasants, who were neutral, and the rich or kulak peasants peasants rather, who were its enemies. The names of all the peasants in these different classes were listed on a board outside the village school. End quote. Now, Stella Morabito says this process is eerily similar to the way critical race theory and all identity politics has been applied in America. You can see the same three divisions, victims, oppressors, and those who might save themselves by becoming allies of the victims. Note the reference to the Komsomol using impressive long words. Today, our miseducated youth are easily impressed by new terms such as systemic racism, intersectionality, and white fragility. Finally, the wokesters identify and condemn those marked as oppressors, doxing and canceling them by name in a written list of names posted in the village. Today, such work is helped along by big tech and by media. Stella Morbidus says the whole idea is to sow chaos where there was peace or at least progress. It's to disrupt and destroy any sense of community a person may have. Fegas continues, these divisions were entirely generated by the Komsomol. The villagers had no previous conception of themselves in terms of social class. They'd always thought of themselves as one peasant family. They then used those newly established identities to rub resentments raw. Now, in Rules for Radicals, agitator Saul Alinsky describes the process, quote, The organizer must first rub raw the resentments of the people of the community, fan the latent hostil- hostilities of many of the people to the point of overt expression, an organizer must stir up dissatisfaction and discontent, provide a channel into which the people can angrily pour their frustrations, your function to agitate to the point of conflict, end quote. Well, that seems to spell it right out. Stella Morbidos is conjuring up such hostilities is the, also the essence of what Karl Marx was aiming for in his call for class consciousness. The problem, as he saw it, was that people were busy with life and willing to live and let live. Or to put in uh, modern terminology, they were insufficiently woke. (laughs) All power elites likewise see social contentment as an impediment to their power. I'm going to come back to this in just a few moments. We'll finish it up in the final segment here. Again, this is Stella Morabito, senior contributor to The Federalist. I'll have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Stay with me. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back.
1: I'm uh, finishing up an article here from Stella Morabito. Critical race theory is a classic communist divide-and-conquer tactic. And by the way, she's not just saying, throwing that out there as an opinion. She's backing it up with actual tactics and actual historical examples of how communists used this to uh, keep people divided and to uh, rub raw differences and, uh, and resentments that may have existed below the surface, this is to bring them to the surface and get people at each other's throats. And she says, in the same fashion today, if people are socially content, the people who are in power, the elite, see that as an impediment to their power. They need to be be stirred up. So in the same fashion, she says, today's critical race theory agitators call for a form of race consciousness that breeds in themselves that very same sort of blind hate. Now, ironically, they're like a photographic negative, kind of a mirror image of the segregationists in Jim Crow days. We've been assaulted with many other forms of consciousness, intended to sow hostilities and lawlessness, immigrant status, gender identity, sexual identity, and on and on. We are being overwhelmed. But Stella Morbido says saddest of all is how critical race theory exploits the tragedy of racial divisions in America. The tragedy is thus reduced to nothing but a vehicle for a power grab by elitists in the circles of academia, media, and big tech. Now, she says, ironically, those power elites are vastly and disproportionately white, and they're in it for their gain. So rather than serve as a balm for healing, she says critical race theory has proven to be poisonous to liberty, true community, and our common humanity. Now, the part where she says, we are overwhelmed, or we're being overwhelmed, I know that there are people who feel this way. I feel it myself sometimes. It's not a matter of they're going to try and convince us. Nope. It feels like, no, they're just going to try to wear us down, grind us down, and, and never let up. So how do you stop stuff like this from moving forward? I know this seems trite. I know it seems simplistic, but I believe this is a very effective way to prevent these kinds of things from taking hold. And it doesn't involve controlling other people. It doesn't involve shouting them down in the public square. More than anything, it just involves resolving that it will not come into existence or you're not going to further that agenda through your own actions. Again, I'm hearkening back to that uh, quote from Solzhenitsyn, let the lie come, but not through me. That's where you have control. That's where I have control. We should never forget that. <clears throat> All right, I want, let's talk some good news. I have some good news for you. That was, that was the bad news. Okay, we've eaten our broccoli. Let's have some dessert. <laughs> Texas just announced it's lifting its COVID restrictions and mask mandates. Now, of course, this is bringing swift condemnation and accusations of recklessness from lockdowners. Gavin Newsom, I think, was it was really ironic to see him. Well, this is just reckless behavior to, to lift these restrictions. Can I tell you though? I talked to people last night. I was uh, I was working my part time gig in retail and talking to people, and noticed a number of people starting to show up unapologetically without masks. More than one person mentioned, "Isn't it great? Texas has lifted their restriction. They're hoping the same thing will happen here in my home state of Utah." And I hope it does. I really hope it happens soon. It's tough, though, because the people in power really have a tough time turning loose of that power. So, what happens when people lose all perspective in a quest to avoid something that they fear? I want to share with you the story of Vicky by Donald J. Boudreau, just to illustrate how quickly we can get off track. When Vicky was 30 years old, her two dearest friends were riding in an automobile when another car, operated by a negligent driver, ran a red light, and crashed into her friend's car. One of Vicky's friends was instantly killed, the other survived, but only with permanent damage to his legs. For the rest of his life, this friend walked with a severe limp. Now, Vicky, of course, was traumatized by this tragedy. Her trauma was intensified by the gruesome photographs she happened to come to possess of the crash scene, including one of her dead friend's horribly mangled and bloodied body. Seeing her other friend's slow, painful recovery and permanent lip Limp only made Vicky's trauma worse. The loss of one of her friends, the serious injuries suffered by the other, and the unforgettable images of those photographs changed Vicky forever. She decided that her life must be devoted exclusively to protecting herself, her loved ones, and her friends from the risk of death or injury posed by automobiles. So Vicky refused ever again to ride in automobiles, and she admonished everyone she knew and had the slightest interest in to also avoid getting into cars. Don't you see? She would impatiently ask others. You can die, die in a car crash. And even if you don't die, you can suffer injuries that will reduce the quality of your life, perhaps for the rest of your days. These are facts. You mustn't ignore them. One by one, Vicky's friends stopped calling, and even calling and texting her. They wouldn't come and visit her. Although otherwise a charming and interesting woman, Vicky's obsession with avoiding death or injury from automobiles became too much. Even the great love of her life, her longtime boyfriend Will, in time, broke up with her. See, Will loved Vicky with the same fire that she loved him, and so at first he tolerated her insistence on walking or bicycling everywhere they went. But when Vicky would not let go of her insistence that he stop driving in a car to her place from his own, which was eight miles from Vicky's apartment, he began to chafe. Still, he agreed to abide by her wish that to visit her, he always ride his bicycle or take the bus. But Vicky soon realized what buses are, like cars, motorized vehicles that can and sometimes do crash. No more riding in buses, Will. I can't bear the thought of you being killed or harmed in a bus crash. Please avoid buses for me. Now, Will was beside himself, uh, torn between his love for Vicky and his need to live something close to a normal life. The last straw came when Vicky informed him that whenever he walks or rides his bike to her place, he must always stay at least 600 feet away from any road on which car drives. That's the minimum safe distance, my love. If you get within 600 feet of a road, the chances are too high that you'll be killed by an out-of-control car. And I can't bear the thought of that tragedy. That latest demand is what prompted Will with a heavy heart to break up with Vicky. Yet as he drove his car back home from his play from her place after he delivered the news, he felt strangely liberated, happy, and hopeful. Now, after losing Will, the only person left in Vicky's life was her younger sister Margie. From the start of Vicky's single-minded obsession with protecting herself and everyone she cared about from the danger of automobiles, Margie struggled to persuade Vicky to let go of this obsession. Vicky, however, remained undeterred. Each time, Margie explained that the risk of dying or being injured by an automobile was not nearly as high as Vicky believed it to be. Margie also unfailingly pointed out that there were countless other risks, many comparable to the risk of death by auto accident, that Vicky routinely accepted without any anxiety at all. But Vicky always resisted. She called Margie a danger denier and waved in Margie's face the grisly photos of the fatal car crash of years ago. Why can't Margie see and accept this fact straight on as I do? Vicky wondered to herself. I simply don't accept her claim that the costs and benefits of traveling by automobile must be balanced against the costs and benefits of other activities. Cars can kill, and if not kill, leave long-lasting injuries. Vicky suspected that Margie had fallen under the spell of some cult that denies scientific reality. One evening while visiting Vicki in her apartment, Margie suddenly collapsed. Grasping her chest, Margie managed to sputter out the words heart attack. Vicki turned white with fear. She jumped around frantically but pointlessly, trying to figure out how to help her sister who lay on the floor in distress. 911, Margie managed to say. What? Vicky asked. I didn't hear you. Margie repeated in obvious pain. 911. Vicky froze and for a few moments stared silently out the window, and then replied firmly, No, no, my darling sister, I can't. I won't. If I call 911, they'll send an ambulance and you might die in a crash while being driven to the hospital. I would never forgive myself for being complicit in your death. Margie pleaded as best she could, but Vicky steadfastly refused, convinced that Margie obviously <clears throat> did not know what was in her own best interest. Vicky was not going to subject her beloved sister to the real risk of being killed or injured in an automobile. There was nothing more to do. Even calling a neighbor for help might incite the neighbor to summon an ambulance, a possibility that Vicky dared not risk. And because Vicky couldn't physically carry Margie to the emergency room. Even if she could, she wouldn't, because doing so would increase the risk that both women would be killed as pedestrians by an out-of-control car or truck. After a half hour or so, Margie lost consciousness. A few minutes later, she died. Vicki was heartbroken. She was more grieved than she'd been at any time in her life. But Vicki took real and immense comfort whenever she recalled that she saved Margie from being killed in a car crash. Although self-imprisoned, alone and forever in her apartment with literally not a friend left in the world, Vicky never wavered in knowing that she had her priorities ordered correctly, sensibly and scientifically. And the story concludes that Vicky did not die as the result of the operation of an automobile. I don't know if this is a real or, uh, you know, uh, a, a fiction story. But does it illustrate a few things that uh, maybe a few of us are grappling with, with people that we love? Thank you, Donald J. Boudreau, for writing this. I'll have a link to it in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. Please check it out for yourself.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.